0: Hello <clears throat> and welcome to another of Paul's or Pablo's uh, uh, podcasts. Um, I'm a bit on a bit of a roll here on the old podcasts. I think once you do something, uh, you can get obsessive with it, and that's currently where I am in terms of reading Gerald Turd's best weird stories. Um, so, yeah. Here I am again. I've done two today. I did the um, wingless victory this morning. And now I'm going to do another one. Which I will bring up now. There's nine of them in this book. Uh, So here it is. It's called Despair Deferred. Life-rejecting teachers, apparently. Uh, let's see what this book says. Uh, what the story goes into. So I've got some relaxing Celtic music in the background. So I hope you enjoy. Uh, in this story, here we go. Despair the third. <coughs> Excuse me. <coughs> Miss Potts puts down Pollard's. Summary of Kreshmer's psychophysical types. For the fifth time, she had read the passage beginning: "The picnic type invariably associates a full and rounded physique with a cheerful, resilient disposition." But as her eyes scanned online her ear listened to some quite something quite different. It continued to echo with something she had been discussing half an hour ago. When she had left the common room. Miss Potts was not picnic. She was hawk-like. Her body was not upholstered so as to be resilient. Her thought was not bounce but grip. Indeed her mind, like a bird's claws, once it had taken hold, found it very hard to let go. She was tall, distinguished, her friend said, and she sometimes said it to herself when trying to arrange herself in front of the mirror. She whispered it only to stop the other whisper, which she knew her not friend sometimes exchanged. That she was gaunt, awfully nice of course, but really rather over tense, don't you think? After all. It's no use simply waiting to bounce back if you are not pneumatic. You've just got to hang on and see that you are not pelted off your perch. But then you must fix your mind and not let it slip. She must concentrate her attention on the science of personality. That will give her detachment. Perhaps she'd do better the passage about the type nearest her own, she turned to the description of the asphenic type. It was, in its successful examples, very retentive. It didn't just bob up and come back. This type stuck it out. But then, of course, it could concentrate its attention. And that, it was quite clear. Miss Potts. Couldn't do it. This time, she didn't even put the book down. She simply let it sag on her lap. Her eyes went out for focus. Her ear, like a badly adjusted photograph, slipped back into the old groove of the record and ground out the same passage with exasperating repetition. Well, what a queer word with which to start things. Late fossil of an extinct optimism. Well, it's really all up. We've got to face the facts. There's nothing more we can do. She had come away from the common room, went for the third time to the discussion, so affable and so futile, so reasonable and frank on the surface. So just under the surface, panicky, had come around to that helpful conclusion. The common room at Battscombe School was, Miss Potts was used, used to thinking perhaps the best house for intelligent views in the whole country. When she had joined the school staff she had felt that in a way she had reached, if not the top of the tree, at least quite a remarkable remarkable elevation. Where else would you meet birds of so many feathers, of such wide ranges of flight and so voluble? Everything was discussed. Nothing was to taboo. Here was the peak of progressive education. Miss Potts came from St Margaret's, Oxford. She was the elder daughter of a widowed lawyer who had been proud of his angular child. Bits of her mind, he used to say to herself, are almost a man's. So when she wanted to take up education seriously, off she went to Oxford. Yet Oxford didn't quite do. The air ten years ago had been full of rumours that the old universities were really out of date. Miss Potts flew in her lot with the progressives. Oxford even scorned psychology. So, once the break was made, Miss Potts went all out for Freud and freedom. But, though bits of her mind may have been masculine, nearly all her body was feminine. However progressive, the mixture is very seldom conducive to peace of mind. Miss Potts wanted to be free. Free for what? Free to be alone? Hardly. Indeed, to be frank, not at all. Free, of course, to find linking easy. And that was far more easily said than done. Even when she had settled in Batcombe with the highest, if most discreetly screened hopes, she found, at least for herself, at least for distinguished women with largely masculine minds, there was a great deal more talking than doing. Again and again, as she brightly, candidly, openly discussed the psychophysical problem with some very intelligent young male master. For Batcombe was, of course, rigidly co-educational. She saw what a gap yawned between words and acts. Indeed, as she pressed on, for what she, a psychologist, trained to observe, she could, no doubt, not, she could not doubt that she saw in young Harold's face that slight rigidity of the cheek muttles, which unmistakably indicate the stifled, but all the more exhausting yawn, and, even worse, that slight swivel of the eye as that young, none too well-educated, Miss Brown ran in laughing loudly. For three years Miss Potts had discussed the whole of life for everyone, and as far as it's meant living, as far as it's meant having any more actual experience than at an Anglican girl's school, it was just as though she had never been a progressive, had never read a line of Freud, had never discussed anything but topics proper to a maiden aunt. This at Batcombe was serious. That is not to say it was not a laughing matter, that was precisely why it was so serious. For if you did not have an affair in Batco, it was almost as bad as though at a good old-fashioned finishing school your French accent was too English. Those whose accent and idiom were perfect made amusing little mots about you behind your back. Yet Batcombe was in the first flight to progress and Miss Potts had gone on drawing an astringent comfort from that. Granted she might not have made the grade among the residents themselves yet there she was, the intellectual, scholastic world if unwillingly looked up to Batcombe. She was sore, she was sure, and anyone on its staff was a distinct figure above the crowd. And even if you could not cash in on all the liberties you preached, well, after all, wasn't there something finer in that anyhow? Though you might not get any of the beer, you could play skittles with other pompous people's convictions and scornfully tell them what you thought of their opium. Indeed, once or twice, When she had been asked during vacations to address small groups of inquirers at Hampstead, she She had tried and bought off, she believed, as a sort of peroration peroration, uh, for progressives those long passages from shore and Russell. One was GPS's aphorism. He who seeks for new liberties for others will not, before they are openly granted for all, prejudice his case with the public, by prematurely availing himself of a special license. She culminated with Bertie's grand slam. Only on the foundation, of unyielding despair can the soul's habitation be built the fact remains however that progressive educators and B.R. Freud and Kretschmer that's um, I've never heard of it. Kretschmer uh, K-R-E-T S-C-H M for mother E-R and bats to a man and women didn't really believe in a soul at all they believed in mind bodies and frankness and truth. Their twin god compelled one to add that the accent was wholly on the body. The soul was the state of mind of a rationally satisfied body. And Miss Potts, in that searching sense, had been far from satisfied. Indeed, things had come to such a pass that after an effort at psychoanalysis and another at endocrine dosage, and a third at orthostasis. Miss Potts, very quietly, but all the more broodingly, began to think of Oakley. Not at the druggish variety, of course. Her digestion had never been her strong point. She hated sticking needles into herself, and her hangover of Oxford good taste still made her feel a reactionary disgust when younger members of the faculty became tipsy. The opium she, daughter of dreaming spires began to hanker for what was religion. So it was that she faced the middle years, it was not a cheerful outlook, often she felt acutely miserable, sometimes she fought in a sort of adolescent, melodramatic way of suicide. That sort of suicide in which you are not the demmed, damp body, but an onlooker at the sympathetic and shocked onlookers hearing all their remorse-stricken eulogies and following a handsome funeral to a charmingly situated grave. And then came the war. That certainly raised the pressure from the personal front. It also brought relief from all the progressives. They had been against war. It was part of the new creed that war was simply due to sex repression. Sex being underpressed by progressives. They naturally maintained that they had debunked war and they dismissed it with a laugh. But this war was different. It was present, pressing. The enemy was obviously suffering frightfully from sex repression. The three underpressed peoples must unite now to oppose and end this sex repression. So the progressives found themselves free from their awkward loyalty to peace, which anyhow was only a byproduct of being unrepressed. After all, if little Alec is permitted to hit Susie on the head for fear he'd grew up repressed if he didn't, surely if I had been repressed during childhood, not allowed to kick and bite? Yeah, not allowed to be kicked and bite father and mother. I had better get her out of my system now. Especially when the enemy is so reactionary and would never permit children to their charter right to kick their elders. And it worked. During those first months of the waiting war, there had been a new friendship between the school and the town and country, which at first Had been very cold to this new intrusion. Now all was warm and friendly. There was also not less warming, a new friendship in the school itself. Those common room meetings from which Miss Potts had for some time come away feeling out of the fun and the frank talk now held her. She was wanted and she wanted to stay on. The young ones wanted to hear about the last war. She and her contemporaries compared experiences. Were we'll listened to as they showed how the present war was present on the last one. How right all of them were then to protest. How right now to cooperate. And best of all, there was a new truce in Miss Potts herself. A full sex life Or religion ceased to be the only choice. The Horn dilemma. A third way opened the life of devoted action, clear progressive thought, framing a really lasting peace. Everyone of intelligence was wanted now, and there could be complete accord and understanding with the dear old church, which, after all, was doing its bit, and far from a little bit. By keeping up morale and keeping war aims high, but that was only during the waiting war. While one side, vicariously for poor Poland, read all about concentration camps, as a duty to keep the edge of one's resolution wetted, and when one went to town, carried with a sense of humorous seriousness, one's little neatly satchelled gas mask. Month by month, one became acclimatised to the war. It was clear this war was going to be a repetition of the last. The poor Poles were obviously unready. The West would, however, be rigid. Jokes about the Blitz that failed to burst with clichés. Then came May. For weeks you simply couldn't get your bearings. Everything you seemed to be going from under you. After all, war is war, and you had accepted it, surely. But if you did make that sacrifice, then war should keep the rules that experts had said were followed. The soldiers had said it was grim, but in its way, law abiding. But this thing was nothing you could call by any name you knew. It was not a battle or a siege. It was an obliterating deluge. A human typhoon. You saw it, hour after hour, sweeping away everything. Infectible defences. inviolable countries. Unbreakable alliances. Everything went down into the maelstrom. You still ate food, but it tasted like damp paper if you slept your dreams seemed worse than being awake until you awoke the sun shone June's blue weather why couldn't it rain a night in June oh for a blizzard and now today Miss Potts had left the common room as early as she used to leave it before the war then on those days she'd often felt she couldn't be more unhappy more unhappy, with less to live for, leaving all those silly, gay, date-making young people, yes, and some of them her age, still doing it successfully. She, who had never even started. And now, though they had all been friendly, yes, pathetically friendly, though they had all been tied together as never before, one of the young ones, handsome as those TB cases often are, I'd actually said, I envy you, your age. You've lived and had the good years. Still, you had to get away. But everyone now agreed that was all up. That was all up. It was really no more than a matter of days. The new mechanised military machine would just continue to sweep over everything the very latest of fortifications had not stood against it. Why should our dear old-fashioned fleet? All defences would be air-bombed out of existence. And then she had looked forward so dolefully to the prospects of long, unchanging, empty years ahead of her. How utterly stupid that kind of expectation seemed now. How ridiculous those better dead wishes appeared. Indeed, what wouldn't she not give just to feel again that basic security in which one could believe that one's own love life mattered? She had thought herself desperately ill used because lying awake in her warmed room on her spring mattress, she was, as Sappho had cried, alone. Now, how long could she hope to have any privacy left her? She remembered every detail of what she had read about the concentration camps. Had read, she now realized, not to get ready for once one herself, but to steal herself, to tell the boys she had taught that now they must man the planes, that must beat the enemy peoples, till they compelled their tyrant leaders to make peace. Today all that dreadful reading had quite another meaning. As she looked down in the little valley at the bottom of which she could see the sea shining in the sunlight there flashed into her mind the picture of a horrid woodcut in an old history of England which she had read as a child. It showed the nuns of Whitby Abbey in Yorkshire gathered together by their abbess. There was a basin on the table around which they stood. The caption was, at the approach of the Danes, the nuns, to save themselves from a worse fate, instructed by their abbess, took each in turn a razor and cut off their noses and their lips. As a child, she had laughingly shuddered at such a conventional defence. But how? Would not death be better than capture? Insult, confinement, torture? For years, she had played with suicide possibilities. If one had an incurable disease, if one was in a bad accident, if one was caught in a burning house, taking out of her pocket the key that she always carried, she went to her lock drawer, Yes, there was the small bottle. She remembered one day, some summers ago, she had been in the biological laboratory. One of the butterfly killing bottles had been dropped by its owner, a boy of 14. Being a good progressive, he had called out, Oh, I say, potty, I've broken that bloody killing bottle. Do be a peach and help me clear it up. She then set him to picking up the scattered pieces of glass. The cake of cyanide itself had split; one half lay out on the on the floor, the other had rolled under the laboratory bench. She stooped down to where she thought it must be, then reeled and found herself sitting with her back against the wall. The reek of almonds. The migraine split in the brain. She knew enough chemistry to know what had happened. A glance showed that she had had only a whiff. A crumb of the cake had fallen into a few drops of water under the bench. Hence the sudden mouthful of gas that had knocked her out. The boy had gone, leaving her to clear up. That's just like all these progressives, she remembered thinking. An old maid, old posse, can finish up the mess they make and be finished off with all their they care. A sudden hatred of life had swept her, and with it an instant sense of how easy it is it was to end it all. So every bondsman in his own hand bears the power to cancel his captivity. She got up carefully. Carefully collected the cyanide in one of the wide-mouthed, glass-stoppered bottles. It was this bottle that she now drew out. She knew what to do. Take the soap dish, put enough water in it just to cover the bottom of it. Crumbled the cyanide. Then emptied the paper into the water. And she sat on the floor with her face over it. Like the Delphic Seville snuffing up the laurel fume. It would all be over in less than five seconds. She wouldn't know anything after the first couple. She went through the steps in her mind. It was all so simple, practical, fool and knave proof. Here was Ultimate (coughs) Armour, a fortified line which was impregnable. She realized with distinct relief that just by thinking this out and making up her mind about what to do, she had gained a sort of reprieve. She felt a wave of dignity and attachment swell in her. It rose, she told herself, from winning back the initiative against life. She was no longer a whimpering rabbit running hopelessly from the pursuing weasel. She was at bay, and being at bay meant that you turned. And once you had turned, you could judge the precise distance between yourself and your pursuer. She remembered someone saying that it was hope that hurt. Full despair was an anesthetic. Certainly, now with the poison bottle out in her hand and the method fought out, she felt quite secure, actually, at her ease. She had time. It was still on the other side of the channel. Of course they would be on this side sometime during the month. There must be no nonsense of hope revived. That would be like letting circulation come back into an anathetised limb. But before they came there was pretty pretty certainly a fortnight ahead perhaps more than that. So the next thing she must do was fix a deadline. She went over to the window When those troops appeared down in the village, when it was quite clear, then she reconnoitered like this, reconnoitered, noitre, don't know how to pronounce that, R-E-C, O double N -n 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 for none, O-I-T-R-E, she reconnoitered, like this from the window, she turned back to the moon and go through her right with the soap dish. If you had time till the enemy captured Batsko. That, she reflected the game, was certainly a fortnight off. Quite time enough, if you didn't eat, to become so weak that by then you hardly care who came. So, since all arrangements were made and there was really nothing more to do, one had better have lunch. Still, we never knew what surprise might be sprung. A raider squadron from the sky, for instance. Pop a piece of cyanide in your mouth. And that would serve quite as well as the planned inhaling. Though, if there was time enough, she was set on having her ritual. Still, just against eventualities, uh, she took her bottle with her. Every noon, though, she would come back to her room. The news remained frightful. True. The central blow was rearing over their heads, but meanwhile, right and left, any possible side supports were dashed away. Therefore, after the daily meeting at the common room, Miss Potts retired to her own room. She would first take out the bottle, then she would look down through the glass stopper into its little shaft sign. She called it her evacuation route. It contained a magic mushroom like that one Alice in had, had to eat to get through the tiny door into that other world. She would then take the soap dish, solemnly place it on the floor, fetch the water bottle, kneel down, carefully pour in the specified amount until the bottom of the dish was covered. And then, placing the poison bottle just the other side of the dish, she would turn and loosen the glass stopper. Yes, it moved easily enough, she could see the yellow, white paste inside. Indeed, as she bent over, she could smell the almond flavour distinctly. Since the news refused to get better, and yet the climax, the actual invasion, refused to emerge, the drill had to be continued. Miss Potts had begun it just to be sure that she would know all the moves without slip or fail when, in a fortnight or three weeks hence, she would actually carry it out. The three weeks became three months and still the blow was just as imminent. The axe was upraised over the victim's neck so it was silly to take one's head off the block. Yet time itself. Miss Potts began to discover it's something, even when the events, which should keep time, won't turn up according to schedule. She went through the daily rites, and it still fortified them. There was just as much reason for going on with it as when it, was, when it was begun. Just as much reason for being ready for fate worse than death. More countries were going under the machine, and more populations were engulfed. Their cries rose out of the daily paper, megaphoned by propaganda. She was never permitted to forget, but something else was creeping into her drill, It was becoming something of an end in itself, more ritual than drill. And day by day and week by week, she withdrew to what she was now calling her boat drill, as torpedoed ships and fear of starvation by blockade began again to figure more in the press and in talk than the invasion itself. She found dread beginning to fade, to modulate, she could hardly believe it, almost into disappointment. The first time she recognised it was when, as the first step in her ritual, after she had locked her door, she went to the window to make her official inspection of the village street, a mile away, and to draw down the sash. Her rule ran when, on looking down to the main street, it had seemed to be empty of all, save those deadly grey or black uniforms. Then the rite is to be completed, and the mystery celebrated. But as she looked down at the village, she realized she could scarcely see it. So misty was it, and the nearby trees at which she glanced were almost leafless. A whole season was gone. The dreadful, incongruous beauty of summer had vanished. The protective fog and cloud were here. Still, the news was desperate. She could not stop her practice. In the common room, several people had remarked that she really seemed quite serene. She knew on what her serenity was founded. She put her hand on the little bottle concealed in her dress. Gradually, though, even the common room's tone began to change. In June, Stetson, the mathematics master, had said, Well, I'm having my bottle of 92 port tonight. Not going to let those boots spill that, too. But now he had just told them what care he was taking of a small cabinet in which he protected his last dozen cigars from damp. Never get any more of those till hell knows when. Of course, though, it was only a reprieve. And the reprieve was really a ruse. She wasn't going to be caught. There was not the slightest ground for hope. And if she admitted hope again, she would have to go through it, through its deadly sickness and death again. No, once bitten, twice shy. She will keep up her ritual. She would not let the local anaesthetic fail. She would not let feeling come back again. So she fought the insidious invader, threatening to sap her defences and lure her from her impregnable lines. For a long time, therefore, nothing disturbed her life. She refused to look at the calendar. There was only one event which could again start time for her. She didn't read the papers she knew that nothing had changed the situation was still so desperate that it was only to be confronted by the attitude she had taken up at the back of her mind though, the faintest questioning went on like those telephone conversations sometimes heard on long distance so faint that a word can be heard only here and there she had re-won the initiative the initiative to turn around and face life what then? Wasn't life itself going on? Was that enough? Did it give you enough initiative just to turn around and face a pursuer who wouldn't come up? Of course, she did her wartime duties as well as her schoolwork. But the former was was no more defense against inner defeat than the latter. No, the only defense was to know, to demonstrate daily, ritually, as she did alone by herself, the hope was dead, that there was nothing to fear because hope, fear's accomplice, was being duly and daily certified as dead and buried. She was meditating over this on her knees one day, with the soap dish with its water in it, the bottle with its stopper officially loosened till you could just smell almonds. When she noticed that her tongue, running idly around the inside of her mouth, had found a cavity in the back of one of the lower bicuspids. She hadn't been to the dentist for months. She was due for a routine inspection just at the time that time stopped. But, of course, she couldn't go go now. That wouldn't do. Utterly inconsistent. Why keep up roof repairs in a house you have mined and mean to blow up the moment a long expected event materialises? Through that smell, repaired cavity, hope and the reacceptance of life would steal in on its own terms, not on what one's own rational conditions. Even if the tooth ate, it, it would be a constant reminder to her not to forget, not to settle down again. Even if it was septic, well, death by premature ageing was perhaps kinder and better for everyone than a cyanide way. Than the cyanide way. If there was time. One thing was clear. Just the wish to avoid natural death should not lure her back to going on with life at any cost. Then, there was sipkins at the farm. She remembered vividly how he had said to her that day she'd given up hope and resolved to die. I'm 50, miss, but good for another 20 years, and to think I'd have to live out my life under them. I've got to stick to the farm. It's my skilled way of keeping them out. But, by George, if I see them in these fields with their dirty boots on my land, I'll pitchfork the first couple like stooks right over the hedge I'm as strong as any lad of 25 and he was That she had suddenly been called into the farmyard as she was going along the lane that led from the school buildings to her rooms there he lay he had been pitching straw the pitchfork was still stuck in a truss he was down on the straw his strong, worn left hand clawed against his chest. Lord, he panted. Lord. She saw at once that he mightn't last till the doctor came. And naturally, she had no injections with her. Only her precious bottle. Wasn't much help. She, she knelt beside him. She knelt beside him. You've done your bit grandly, she said. It was all she could think of. Her eyes rolled around to hers. What? he whispered. You've helped as much as anyone, all of us, to resist. Then she thought she had better add something stronger to help him in his deafening pain. You've helped us to win. He'd never be there to see, one way or the other. To win? he whispered, puzzled, querulous. God is Doctor coming? Yes, he said. Yes, he's just here. Suddenly the clawed hand opened. Simpkin spoke very faintly, but without strain. Woo, that was hell, he said. Lord, I'm comfortable, but weak, awfully weak. Then, with surprise all the more intense, because it seemed to be conveyed from such an immense distance as he spoke in the thinnest whisper. What's this? What's this? His mouth fell open with what seemed ultimate abatement. He was dead. And he was her age, much stronger of course too. Last June, if anyone had said which of those two would go first, she surely would have been the choice. So time did go on men wore out and died, just as they did when there was no war. She found that she had come to think that you simply couldn't die unless you were killed, or you killed yourself. And here, right at her feet, was death at his work, taking his average yield. And his partner, Payne, worked beside him just as efficiently without bayonet or bastardado. And just as though gas and bombs weren't needed to make life intense and to make time count. That noon, as she knelt before her bowl of happy dispatch, her mind wandered beyond her bicuspid cavity cavity. These two things, her fate and the country's defeat, the one entailing death for the other, no longer seemed to embrace everything between them. It really didn't go down, as she had assumed, to the foundations of everything. Something else went on underneath, like an immense ocean current on which all the sea rack, foam and waves churned and floated. Still, for the time being, the war and its overarching breakers must be all, for all of them under its shadow. She must be ready to plunge at a moment's notice. She could not and she would not withdraw her ultimatum. She could and would have set life only on her own terms. Victory or death. Surely there could no longer be any doubt about that. That was the only possible realism. Yes, in Simpkins' death one saw that life was going on its own way. And, of course, victory would, and could mean, only death the third. We all live under an indefinite reprieve. Who had said that? Wasn't it one of those comfortable Victorians whose security and firm expectation of living seemed almost fabulous now? Yet the daily news always reconfirmed her grim faith. She would quote Chesterton, I bring you nowt for your comfort." Yea, nowt for your desire, Save that the sky grows darker yet, And the sea rises higher. The storm must, it simply must, Sooner or later blot out everything. About that, there could be no doubt. And that was the issue. The only issue for practically everyone. Of course, some hundreds, thousands, Yet suspense could really be sustained, might go as Simpkins had gone, slipping out in the pause before the blow. They must go by the law of averages, but they would only be those exceptions which prove nothing. She thought rapidly of the national statistics she had read. Some 500,000 people died from natural causes every year. That number will represent a big battle, even today. But, of course, They were nearly all old or very young, and what were the latest figures about fewer people in the island dying by accident, because in spite of the great number butchered by bombs, the check on the motor traffic had greatly reduced the road casualties. Somehow one had never thought of the civilian's motor car as a monster destroying life, yet there it had been, a worse juggernaut than many a tank. Simpkins' last moment kept on coming back to her. She could hear her voice, passionate and strong, last June, utterly involved in the one issue, victory or death, and then across that resolute tone, she heard the thin whisper, cutting through all that assurance. When he was actually dying, all he had said about dying, with brave good faith, meant just nothing. It all melted away in something far bigger that underflowed it. Yet she wasn't dead, wasn't likely to be, soon. The one likelihood, the one pretty certainty, how odd to cause such a degree of high risk by that vapid little word pretty. The one thing they must all still count on was the invasion and then when it came off then she must do her bit and call it death. So the ritual was continued right into the spring, and outward it continued to be fully sanctioned. People came down regularly from town, half stunned. The preliminary barrage for the invasion one could see was being kept on a full blast. Life surely was hell, and though one might stick it out, one could never think of lessening, even by a jot one's minimum terms. There they stood, starkly rational victory. Or defeat and death. If it was victory, then one would reconsider the terms on which one might take back the deceiver. But to think of victory was let hope get its nose out of the bag and begin to breathe again. The facts, the bare facts, without a shred of wishful thinking, came just to this. Though a few irrelevant deaths, a sort of seepage might go on. For practically everyone, everything else had stopped or had ceased to matter. Time had stopped Uh, for all private life had stopped arrested until the great event on which it would be decided whether life again would be livable. Of course some private affairs did go on now and then People were married, just as now and then, the older ones died. But in its way, marriage was simply, like any other rations, an aid to one's war work. Relaxation, concerts, movies, dances, these were all parts of mental and physical hygiene. And so was marriage, because no one could. And then Adelaide, her only first cousin, whom she had treated as a younger sister, called suddenly without notice. Adelaide, she remembered, as though in another life, had married during the Grey War, the war of waiting. They hadn't seen each other or heard each other during this next life, the life of the sceptered death, death as an everyday possibility. Now, the moment Adelaide stepped into the room, Miss Potts knew that she had no need to be told. She made the easy calculation instantly. But she stammered and couldn't help herself. But you must have done it that very month. How could you? Adelaide burst into tears and was actually out of the room before Miss Potts realised that. As elder sister, she had failed in an immemorial actor-proof part. She ran out and dragged the girl back. I'm so glad, she managed to say. She noticed her own tone and noticed, as clearly, that it had failed to register on the pregnant mother. Her cousin turned with a kind of animal satisfaction, brute, insensitive to all but its own race and and profession of life. I knew you'd be delighted. Jim and I are so pleased. We're sure it'll be a boy. We've made all the arrangements. The doctors say it's as easy as appendicitis now. Anyhow, just think, when he's born, oh, I'm so happy. Yes, Miss Potts remembered having read all about the endocrine glands, what they do during pregnancy. But now, at this crisis, at this culmination of crises, to bring into this world, into this beleaguered, bombed, invasion-threatened, crowded island, to bring another life. Another mouth, to fill another hospital bed. And Adelaide had been so keen minded, yes, even to being hard boiled. She'd been the first to mock propaganda and blah. She was, she was for the war, of course, but only because she used to say if there was a fight, she liked the gloves off. Call butchery, butchery, she used to say coldly. We've got to clean up the bloody mess. If we fail, we'll be done, and we'll deserve it. If we succeed, well, then we'll get out the old virtues again and see if we can make something efficient out of them. this time. Yes, here was the body, which a few months ago had uttered all that and much more good, telling progressive pitchforking. And now, here she was, a cow, big, swollen, diffused, drugged. It was later than she thought. Adelaide stayed to tea. Jim, she said, had to be in the district and had left it to her to tell her sister the good news. He called her back. Exercise was all the thing. Nowadays, in pregnancy, right up to the date. And it was literally up to the date. Tea was hardly begun. They had hardly taken their first sip of that hay and hot water that now passed for tea when Adelaide said she felt a little queer. Miss Potts' anxiety was a good diagnostician. She ran to the telephone. Fortunately, Dr. Charles was at home. He did not come, however, until she had had her second treatment in detachment from the horn dilemma victory or death. She saw Adelaide before her eyes as she had seen Simpkins torn out of the present setting. The crisis rushed in at a moment out of what had seemed to them all the world of basic realism and plunged into something vaster and deeper. But whereas Simpkins had been snatched by death had gone off into something vast unknown. Adelaide, infinitely more puzzling, was being snatched by life was something more in- instant and actual than any simply man-made activity like war. Here at her knees, instead of her hard-boiled, adequate, war-minded cousin, was simply an animal that rivered and bellowed in contest, not with a mortal enemy, but with the remorseless drive of life itself. Life was so much more agonising than death, and yet was what people always chose rather than death. Life that rent and tore, mired and bestialized, until, beside this exhibition of birth, a concentration camp seemed an austere, cleanly monastic order. Even Adelaide's face seemed to be smudged out, all personal expression and character gone, while her body seemed a shapeless bag within which some violent animal was kicking pounding to break its way out. And when Dr. Charles took over, the second act was not less surprising, not less incongruous with that attitude which she had built up and taken as basic realism. The child emerged, as all children have always emerged, with more outrageous assault on the decencies of every one of the five senses than a massacre could make. But that was not the final shock. That was psychological, not physical. That was Adelaide's reaction. She lay gasping, sweating, swabbed. The billowing smell of chloroform gave a final wash of nausea to the rank farm odours that lay heavily about the room. And, sunken in all this, Adelaide, the near, the repressed, lay sprawled. Her body might well be out of kilter after such an extraction was not the physical sprawl that hit Miss Potts. It was the idiotic, loose admirability on Adelaide's face had become all unstitched, unupholstered. Dr. Charles was tidying up after sending Miss Potts to call for a nurse and hearing that none could be alone for an hour or more. He said, ritually turning to the patient little chap is doing fine and you're all right, my girl. Adelaide, who'd never seen the doctor before, nodded, smiled sheepishly and goggled. Miss Potts, he said, give her the boy. She picked up the object, wrapped in a piece of wool. Looking, she thought, rather like a large bandaged thumb, and which, a few moments before, she had been ridding a really quite terrible natural travelling wrap in which it had arrived. The Bath have uncovered an unutterably ancient and wrinkled little fellow not young but also not weak. He looked as tough as well cured rubber and heavens, he needed to be considering what she had just seen him go through. He was cross of course cross as hell he gave a curious sense of vitality and of a settled determination to endure this outrageous experience. She carried him over to his mother. Adelaide's sagged and damp face, like an energetic washerwoman's held too long over the scalding suds, broke into sub-rational delight. She folded the stirring lump of terracotta flesh into her neck. In Miss Potts, Only two emotions remained. One expressed itself in the words she whispered to herself. So this is life, real life. It just doesn't care a damn for meaning. It cares so much that it knows meaning doesn't matter. The other was so too strong, too outrageous for words. She felt herself bent over the two creatures, who all, who at tea time had still been one, and now one of them. Would go on into a world she would never know, in which she'd be only the faintest of fading memories at best. Go, go, she said. Go, go. It was several days before Miss Potts had the use of her sitting room, since Adelaide couldn't be moved to the hospital earlier. Now, mother and child were doing fine, you. and with that bulletin fixed, life and the crisis and the ritual reply to to the crisis must be resumed. Sure enough, the crisis was still there. News continued to be bad, just steadily getting graver. Another country had gone under, but still the, the, the the denouement was postponed. It's just like the Arabian Nights, thought Miss Potts. She stood by the window. She ought to be making a survey of the village street part of the ritual you can see it beautifully today she noticed that the trees were in leaf again as full as when time officially stopped last year a whole year a thousand and one nights the famous title came into her mind so sharon had gained a thousand one reprieves three years she thought and that started another old mental echo three years or the duration of the war that was the old enlistment term of the last war that had seemed to last forever and no one seemed likely to survive it or if they did to find any life worth living at the end of it but now all that was getting on for a quarter of a century ago people thought about it mainly now as her parents did about the crimean war and in the end Scherazer, 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 Scherazer was reprieved. That's about S C H E H E R A Z A D E. For good, indefinitely. I married the monster and gave him a son. Her mind hopped over to Adelaide. The boy had a name now Franklin, the scientist, the explorer, the president. He was a registered person. He was growing, too, every day. It was absurd but undeniable, and absurd and undeniable. It was far more interesting than the war news. She had moved to her washstand and, by routine, had taken the soap dish, removed the soap from its strainer, put the dish on the floor, knelt, poured the water, and then felt in her pocket for the bottle. Of course... She remembered while Dr Charles was about, she had locked it up. She did not want his keen nose smelling out, that telltale omen scent. She found the key and went to the drawer in her desk. Then she paused. How long would she go on with this if nothing happened? Or rather, if the Zero Hour refused to strike her, though everything else struck and crashed? How long would she wait about? Arrested while life and death inexhaustibly dealt out fresh cards in the endless game. Her tongue went to that smell vice-crispid cavity. Yes, it was twice the size, and the tip of her tongue, like a finger on an electric bell, could start a trill of pain when she pressed in. Was she going to lose that tooth? Here was a small, sharp question. She could decide that she must She alone would pay if she didn't. After all, death by dental neglect would hardly be realism, and it would be very uncomfortable and slow. Philosophers had endured prison, but Shakespeare said even they bowed to toothache. If only things would run on schedule, if only an invasion had been tried and failed, or had come off, but just as it was, with some people dying and others being born, just as though the war was not the final thing, and the war always failing to go according to timetable. Could it be true that just facing things wasn't enough? Might true wisdom be even to refuse to face things, to refuse all plans, all large provisions? How could you plan if you couldn't really foresee? She had thought the actual gospel's pretty soft stuff. They kept her from joining the church, even when she saw that Christianity, in its time, had picked up a lot of psychological knowledge, useful enough to stranded individuals. But the Sermon on the Mount, on the mount, all that sentiment about easy-going lilies and careless little birds, what was the actual phrase in which all that poetry ended? As a matter of fact, she remarked to herself, as she recalled the passage, It doesn't conclude that everything is sweet fun, the deduced proposition is sufficient unto the day is the evil thereof. That would mean that one is meant to take life in the actual, swallowable, daily doses as they come. What had all of them been going through? They had been trying to stop the present and to live in what they had concluded was a certain future. They had been doing time, as convicts say. But what time? The indeterminate sentence. She smiled wryly as that phrase, beloved progressive penologists, came to her lips. But the meaning of the indeterminate sentence was to give back the initiative to the convict. He could weave in his liberty by doing something, even while doing time. Time, even in prison, waited on you on your good conduct. No, it had not been going through a progressive, indeterminate sentence. Quite the reverse. Something quite different from you and your terms, ultima, ultimator, and demands, controlled the stretch, played the music slow or fast. Something she'd read in her old college days when she'd met a theosophist, floated into her mind. Time is all, it, man, pain and pleasure, Sorrow and happiness, disaster and prosperity, they are the same thing felt at a different tempo. Well, she'd heard the psychophysiologists say something of that sort about pain. Her tongue gingerly felt around the back of the bicuspid, but could make the pain go. You could make the pain go from half pleasure to quite pain. The highbrow hymn went on. The sum of pain is ever the same. Man calls it happiness when the vast wheel moves too slowly for him to perceive it. Brahman accelerates the beat and man cries out disaster. But it is only and always the wheel that was probably true too. Hansi often read in animal psychology that most creatures can't notice moon if it is below a certain pace. The wheel, a pleasant stretch at the pace we are accustomed to, breaking us if it goes any faster. Wasn't that as near the actual truth, real realism as one could get, and weren't Christ's practical epigrams to deduced behaviour based on such an insight? After all, everyone does die, whatever you may do, and if life is had no sense in itself, it didn't have any more th- at 80 than 18. Just managing to live long doesn't prove anything. To die an imbecile, imbecile at 80 or of cancer at 70, though one might do it in a fine white ward or by oneself. Was that a better demonstration of worthwhileness than dying altogether, all under 40? in the blind, hot belief that right, our right, was winning. But we just don't notice the one-by-one erosion. It's the sudden slump of a mass that startles us. We don't notice anything that steals on us. She had moved back to the window, so out of time had she become that she'd neglect the second part of her ritual. After looking down to the village, she should have closed the window. As she raised her free hand to the sash, her eye was caught by something moving very slowly in the undergrowth of the coppice, where her hair came right up to the house. Yes, it was a cat moving like a shadow. It was stalking, stalking that bird which was picking up worms under the cake of old leaves. The beast stole out of cover, so steadily that though the bird between pecks gave its involuntary look around its eye passed over this quietly changing blur she was watching the cat now it had ceased to move at all she could see its shoulder muscles gently folding and mounting under its black fur the cat was ready to spring Miss Potts involuntarily flung at it, the object in her hand The cat leaped wildly. The bird squawked away into safety. The bottle had disappeared, but Miss Potts could see the glass stopper gleaming among some leaves. The damp woodland, she thought, will suck up that bit of poison paste. Perhaps a few grubs will die, and in consequence, a few saplings will grow better. She left the window open, picked up the soap dish as she passed it and replaced it. There were still five minutes before her next class. She'd have time to ring up the dentist and make an appointment. And that was Despair third. Hope you enjoyed that. And may you stick to Pablo's channel for the next stories that will come along. Bye for now.